so we're in Luke. If you'd all turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. So Luke chapter 9, verse 10. And I'm just going to kind of give you a little bit of background right before I get into to today's message. Today's message is titled, Holding Nothing Back. So I want you to, to, to just right now on the count of three, everybody's going to say that. Holding nothing back. Okay, one, two, three. Man, you guys sound good today. Nice. All right, so holding nothing back. Now, some background. We're in Luke chapter 9. We're in verse 10. Um, previous or Prior to this, uh, you have Herod. He has just executed, well, recently in the past months, he's executed John the Baptist. Um, if you don't know that story, I mean, it was, it was just a really sad, sad story. It was John the Baptist's head is taken off, placed on a silver platter. And John the Baptist, if, if he's, he's Jesus' forerunner. He, he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. He proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. And he's also Jesus' cousin. So this is a painful subject. This is a, this is a sensitive issue. Jesus was not just God. He was also fully man. And so this is a painful thing. If you've ever lost a loved, a loved one in your life, he knows that same pain. He's lost loved ones in his life. Okay? So John the Baptist has just been executed. In addition to that, Jesus has just sent, he had just sent out the apostles to do what was a ministry tour throughout the entire Galilean area. Now, they've come back. They were gone for about two to three months, most scholars believe. Now they've come back, and they're reunited with Jesus after this, this time away with him where they, they raised people from the dead. Uh, they healed the sick. They healed the lepers. They cast out demons, and they proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed the kingdom of God. And so, I mean, these are these disciples, and we, we've talked a lot about them. So they just experienced this incredible, this incredible time seeing the power of God move, like raising people from the dead. I've been a part of, like, people's ankles being healed and stuff, but I still am waiting for the day where I see, like, a person just raised from the dead. That would scare me a little bit, maybe. Maybe that's why I haven't seen it yet. I need to get rid of that fear. But that's incredible. They've seen so much. Now, Jesus, what we're picking up in, in verse 10, he's just received in recent days the news of all of this. He's just received the news about John the Baptist's death, and now also he's reunited with his disciples, and now they're telling Jesus everything that, that happened on their ministry tour. So that's kind of where we're picking up, okay? We're, we're, we're just covering, I'm not, we're not going to be preaching on those areas um, in this, this series in Luke. So I just wanted to give you that background of what's going on uh, between when Ron spoke last Sunday and where we're at today. Now, we're going to talk about a very familiar miracle today, the, the feeding of the 5,000 plus. It's 5,000 men plus women and children, so that's like 10 to 15,000 people, okay? That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Everybody's super familiar with this miracle. I mean, it's probably, I mean, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four of the Gospels, and this is, by most, is considered to be the very climax of Jesus' ministry, this is, the, like, this is the peak. This is where he has the most followers. This is where the most people are interested. This is where he does one of the most profound, large-scale miracles. Okay, so this is a very climactic point, which is probably why we hear about it so much. Now, today, I'm, I'm praying that, that the Lord gave me a, a real fresh uh, view on this. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just praying that our hearts would be completely open to it. I, last time I preached, I talked about um, good and fertile soil. So this morning, I pray that we would each in our own hearts right here, right now, put away all distraction, put away all confusion, all question, whatever, and get our hearts ready for the seed that the Lord's about to sow. Amen? Amen, amen. All right. So now we're going to, let's, let's get into Luke chapter 9, verse 10. It, it picks up like this. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. 
and he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, you don't have to turn there, but you can mark it in your notes. Uh, just mark chapter 6, verse 30. And I'm going to be incorporating a lot of scripture from the parallels in the Gospels. You don't need to turn there, but you can mark it. It'll be up on the overhead. Mark 6, 30 explains it this way. He says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had not even had leisure enough to eat. So, Again, these, these men, these 12 apostles now, they're, they're now defined as apostles, not just disciples. They've been set apart from even the disciples that were following Jesus. They're now apostles. Now, they've just returned again from months of ministry. That's exhausting. If, if anybody in this room's ever been involved in ministry, it's exhausting. It takes a toll because you're dealing with not just your own stuff, but everybody else's stuff, and that's heavy. Like, it's really heavy. And so these guys have been doing this for months and months and months, and Jesus even tells them when he sends them out, he says, don't even take food, don't even take a bag, don't even take clothes. Like, just, they don't, like, well, they're, they're wearing their clothes. He said, don't take extra clothes, okay? They didn't go out naked, I hope. But they're out there, okay? And and all they have is the bare essentials. And they're to live with people that take them in and, and live basically off of their generosity. So this is a very exhausting, very trying, very difficult time, you know. And Jesus has even warned them. He says, like, if, if they don't accept you, then leave and, and, you know, shake the dust off of your feet. Now, so they're, they're just returning exhausted. And Mark's awesome because he, he explains so much. I like the detail. He talks about they hadn't even had time to eat yet. So they just get back to Jesus and if you know anything about Jesus, Jesus likes to eat, and he likes to eat with people. It's an awesome aspect of our Lord, is he enjoys communion with people. And so the disciples are probably returning, longing for this connection back with their, with their, their Savior, with their Messiah, with their leader. And they come expecting to be with him, just alone, to, to, to just be by themselves. And Jesus even tells them in Mark, he says, come away with me that you may have rest you know, and then it's kind of hinting to the idea that they're going to be restored and, and, and get their food in their stomachs because they're starving. Now, let's go on to Luke chapter 9, again, verse 11. It says, when the crowds learned it, however, they followed him. And, and he, speaking to Jesus, welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who, need, who had need of healing. Mark 6 tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He sees this crowd of people, this mass crowd. Think about this. This is like 15,000 people coming after you. That's scary, a little bit. That'd be really terrifying for me anyway. And Jesus feels compassion towards this crowd of people, and he calls them in. He brings them, and he welcomes them. He accepts them. Because Mark says that he, he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were in danger. They're confused. They were looking for something to follow, looking for something deeper, something with meaning. Verse 12, it goes, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, came and said to Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, basically what, what you see in this story is Jesus, in an afternoon, in a morning and afternoon, has just taught an entire sermon series. Most of us can't even sit through like an hour of a sermon, okay? And Jesus has been going for like, hours upon hours upon hours. So the apostles, they come up to him and they're, they're real brilliant guys. So they come up to Jesus and they're like, hey Jesus, uh, you're doing an awesome job, man. This is a great series. You know, these people are getting so much, you know, but they need to go away now. You know, like we need to wrap this up. We need, we need to get this. It's kind of like when somebody in the sound booth is like, 
telling it, hey, dude, come on, you're like way over time, let's get this going. So that, that's kind of what we see here, this scene with, with the disciples coming to Jesus. Like you, you kind of need to wrap up this sermon series, you know, maybe pick it up tomorrow. You know, you're not, you're not the kingdom of God isn't coming tomorrow, right? Come on, Jesus, like we, we, can, we can spare some time on this. So he, they, they recommend that, that Jesus send him away. Not only do they recommend, they, they basically tell Jesus what to do. Um, and that's a little scary for me. That'd be an interesting situation. I wonder how Jesus looked at them. There's probably a look of death a little bit. It'd have been a little scary. Like when your mother looks at you and it's just like terrifying, like pierces into your soul. You know that one? And so they say, send them away. Send them away. Now I want you to, to catch, catch the, the, the comparison there, the contrast. Jesus, compassionate, come in. Humanity rejects them and says, send them away. Because we need our rest. Because we need our food. We have a need. Jesus, you you promised us. You're the one who told us to come with you and that we would find rest. You didn't tell us that we're going to have to now deal with these 15,000 people. Come on. And so so that's kind of of this situation that that they find themselves in. Now verse 13 says, but he said to them, (laughs) it says, you give them something to eat. So they said, send the crowd away so that they can go get something to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. What do you do when Jesus tells you to feed 15,000 people? <laughs> yeah, seriously, they didn't do that. They're like, their thing was like, they're like, what? Feed them? Are you kidding me? We haven't even eaten ourselves. Now you want me to feed 15,000 people? They're probably like turning out the pockets and there's nothing but lint. They don't got money. They don't have food of their own. They're freaking out. See, Jesus calls them to do something that's completely humanly impossible. And he knows that. He knows it. He knows it. He's God. He says, you feed them. And they freak out. Obviously, they're free. I would be freaking out. You'd be freaking out too. He said, they say, but, but we, have, we, have no, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and, and buy food for all these people. Another translation says, unless if you actually mean that we're supposed to go buy these, these people food, like that's the, there's no way that's what you're saying, right? Because we don't have the money for that. There's no possible way for us to do that. Jesus calls them to do something impossible, and all they do is tell them about all their limitations. And all too often in our lives, God calls us to do something impossible, and our first reaction is to focus on limitation. To focus on limitation. And we'll bring that all around towards, towards the end of this. I like the way it says it in John, so that you can mark this in your notes. This is John chapter 6, same story, same, same section. It says this, lifting up his eyes then, speaking about Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Could you imagine being Philip? Jesus looks at you and says, hey, Philip, look at all these guys. What are we going to do about this? You're like, dude, you're Jesus. What are you talking about? What are we going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? I'm like, I can't do nothing about this. Now, the funny part about this, the cool thing is Bethsaida is where we see in Luke, that's kind of the background of where we're at geographically. Philip was from Bethsaida. So Jesus says, I mean, it's cool the way he does this. He, he points out Philip. He says, hey, hey, you're from here. This is your hometown. Like, what are we supposed to do, Philip? Come on, man. You got to show me all the bread shops. You got to tell me where it's all at. And Philip's like, what are you, like, are you, you're kidding me. You are kidding me. Philip states this. He goes on, the, the, the verse goes on, it says, and it says this, it says, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself already knew what he would do. But Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little. 
200 denarii worth of bread, that's about eight months worth of wages, okay? So whatever you make, let's take like the average, whatever somebody makes, I don't even know what average is anymore, but whatever you make in eight months, that's what Philip is saying. Even if I had eight months worth of income, I didn't pay the rent, I didn't pay utilities, all of it went to nothing but bread. Not everybody, everybody wouldn't even get a little bit, not even a crumb because the crowd is so vast. So same story, same, same section, and Jesus is saying, Philip, how are we gonna accomplish this impossible thing? And Philip points out all the limitations, all the limitations. And then it says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Philip's basically like, Jesus, don't ask me. And he probably like brings Andrew out and throws him like right in front of Jesus. Hey, ask Andrew. He knows what to do. Andrew's like, what, what? And then Andrew sees this little boy walking by. He's like, get over here. You know, he's like, hey, Jesus, we have this little boy. He's got some bread and fish, but I don't know what we're going to do with it. It's funny. The scripture never even says the boy came up and offered his food. We just kind of assume that part. I think Andrew jumped him. Okay. I straight up, I think that, I think Andrew got really vicious. He's like, I don't know what to do. There's a little kid. He's got a snack pack. We're using it, you know? And Andrew's probably thinking about his stomach. He's like, Lord, what is it for so many? It's good enough for me, but, you know, for so many, I don't know what we're going to do with this. <laughs> so Andrew freaks out when he's placed in the spotlight, and he points out the boy's limitations. He points out the limitations of what, of what they had, of what was available to them. I think it's funny in Luke, it just says the disciples said, we have this. So it's kind of like they really just, hijacked this kid's snack and took it as their own. They didn't even, I mean, that's just intense. And now here we are in 14 of Luke 9. It says, for there were about 5,000 men. There were about 5,000 men. And and Luke, he he really focuses on that word, the the word men. And again, we we know this, who have been in church for a long time. If you haven't, it's okay. It's like, basically, Jewish culture counted men. They counted households by men. And so there was 5,000 households, not 5,000 people. So you count count women and children, and kids can eat, man. Like, I know you guys with teenagers, you're like, man, there better not have been teenagers there. You might as well have like 50,000 people there, you know? So there's there's about 10 to 15,000 people here, not just 5,000 men. And then he says to his disciples this. So he says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. 10 to 15,000 people, have them sit down in groups of 50? So he goes from asking them to do something impossible like feeding them, and now he says, okay, now organize them in groups of 50. Man, I can't even get 50 teenagers to make a circle. Like, I can't, it's so hard. And, and I'm not, like, no hate on them. We couldn't do it either in this room. It's so hard to get 50 people to make a circle. But he, he tells them, you know, feed them. And then they're like, oh, we can't do that. And then he's like, all right, whatever. And then you guys organize them. And they're like, okay, I guess. If we can't feed them, at least we can try to do this. You know, there's somewhat possible. And it says eventually they did so and they had them all sit down. That's a miracle. I don't even understand how they did that. And that must have been very, very difficult. But they succeed. Verse 16 picks up. It says, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Okay, now everybody stop reading. You can't, read, you can't read ahead, man. Don't ruin the story, okay? See, something that God showed me recent in, in the, the recent years, all too often we read scripture and we already know the end of the story. 
So there's no build. There's no like, there's no expectation. There's no like, oh man, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? You know, it's kind of like if you've ever seen the movie The Gray and you're like watching the end, oh, who's going to die? What's going to happen? You know, there's no suspense when we already know the end and we just, we just throw our knowledge into it without giving God any weight in the situation. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, he's going to do it. That's cool. You know, I want you to think about this. Put yourself in their circumstance. You have no idea what's about to happen. No idea. Okay. So Touch your neighbor and say, don't cheat. Don't look ahead. Okay? Don't look ahead. And we're going to stop on verse 16, and, and we won't come back to this story till the, end of this, till the end of this message. What I want you to do is focus on verse 16. And these are the things, the, the four main things I, wa- I want to encourage you to write down in your notes. It has to do with the bread, and I kind of hinted it to it uh, last time I taught about brokenness. And, and so Jesus took, so write that down, Jesus took. So it says Jesus took the bread. The second thing I want you to write down is Jesus blessed. The third thing is Jesus broke. And the fourth thing is Jesus gave. And it's up on the overhead if you need it. Jesus took, Jesus blessed, Jesus broke, Jesus gave. So everybody say Jesus took. Okay, everybody say Jesus blessed. Everybody say Jesus broke. Everybody say Jesus gave. Okay, man, I love your, hearing you guys conversate back with me. Do you know preaching wasn't supposed to ever be like a monologue? It's a dialogue where people, like, there's like a call and response. That's what gives it life. And so I encourage you guys, again, like shout out, amen. Um, I think I said this last time, the youth sometimes yell bacon. I don't know why, but they do. But when something's good, man, when it just hits your soul, like you go for it. Don't worry about the person next to you. We don't need no religion in here. This is be free, Amen. Yeah, see, you guys like that. Oh, that was a good one. (laughs) Bacon. I'll say bacon to that. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to focus on these four main, these these four major aspects of what Jesus does with this bread. And we're going to tie this into the life of Abraham. So if you'd all turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. To Genesis chapter 12. And this will all be on the overhead. You can write it in your notes or you can turn there if you're quick enough. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. What we see here is God took Abraham. We see a taking. God takes Abraham. Okay, and this is the call of Abraham. Abraham's about 75 years old at this point. It says, the Lord, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So you see it taking everything that Abraham had known for 75 years of his life, God gets him and removes him from all of that comfort. He just removes him from him. And he tells him these, these beautiful things. He's telling him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. He's saying, like, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's intense because then we get this attitude maybe like, you know, if you have somebody who doesn't like you, you're just like waiting for them to say something like really negative towards you. And you're like, all right, God, curse this person right now. Let's go. You told me. You promised me. I hope Abraham wasn't like that. And now we're going to get in. Let's, let's go into to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And what we're going to see here is, is a beginning of both blessing and promise that begins to take place in Abraham's life in his relationship with God. It says sometime later, 
doesn't give us an exact time, so we don't know how much older Abraham is. But it says, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abraham replied, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness because of his faith. One little, one little snippet. This isn't just a little thing that I, that I want to point out. Is before Abraham's taken outside to see the stars, he's in his tent. And a tent is nothing but limitation. You can only see so far up. Maybe eight feet, maybe six feet, depending on how high your tent is. And what does God do first and foremost? He, he, he tells Abraham... Get outside of your little perspective and look at the stars. Look up. Look to the sky because this is where your promise lies. Not in your limitation, but in the expanse of all that I am. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? See, sometimes we get so caught up in our own little stuff, our own little tent, that it requires God removing us from our comfort to show us everything that he is. Because when our vision's limited, so are our lives. When your vision is limited, so is your life. Now we have this, this thing, so, so God's blessing him. And that, the, the main part of that scripture was where it talks about um, Abraham saying, oh Lord, what, what good are all your blessings? But he acknowledges he's being blessed, amen? Like, like Abraham's been given all this stuff, finances, like he has camels and donkeys that he doesn't even know what to do with anymore. There's all over the place, running a little rampant. It's kind of like a zoo, he has so much, so much. He's blessed, but his, his thing is, God, but you promised me something. I don't see, I don't see this. I don't see this at all. And God continues to reaffirm that promise. Now, we're gonna get into God breaking, the breaking of Abraham. So, so we've seen where God took Abraham. We've seen where God blessed Abraham. And God continues to bless Abraham even through the breaking process, but now we're focusing in on breaking. The birth of Ishmael. This is Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. You could just put that down in your notes. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham was like, Well, I'm a team player. If that's really what you want, <laughs> whatever. I don't want to do it, though. You know, whatever you want. Sarai, just remember, let's get a contract written out. This is your idea, not mine. <laughs> Stinking Abram. What did he do? And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal, you know, begrudgingly, of course, of course. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. That's important. This happened 10 years after. We started with Abram being, uh, being 75. He's now 85. The promise of God has not come into fruition just yet. 10 years. 10 years. Who, I mean, how many of us can wait 10 years for something without giving in 
like Abram does. Ten years. It says, so Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Man, I'm not even going to make a comment on, on the nature of ladies. <laughs> That's kind of like one of those things where it's like, hey, hey, honey, can I do this? And she's like, whatever you want. You're like, all right, yes. I'm going golfing three times today. And then you get back and no conversation. Doesn't like you very much right now. Hey, say what you mean. We need that. We're slow. We are the slower species. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bacon. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. Mind games. All these love games. All right. Now we're going to move on into, into Genesis 17. What we saw there, in, 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 uh, so you can turn to Genesis 17. What we saw in chapter 16 is Abram begins, he begins to break. Under pressure, he begins to break. And he, he, he tries to take things into his own hands. And it's not like any of us know what that's like. But we do. I mean, we, we take things into our own hands. We take matters into our own hands. It's like, God, you are moving way too slow. I'll just help you out a little bit. I'll just help you out a little bit. And then chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now, when Abram was 99 years old, 99 years old, this is 24 years later after the promise, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I'll make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be father of many nations. Now, I just want to pause. We have a name change. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing that we see in Scripture. In, in, in the Old Testament, in Jewish culture, the, I mean, God, God was introduced as Yahweh. And they actually inserted the vowels, and they would call it Yehovah, but they inserted vowels because, I mean, there are no vowels. It's Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels. Now, if you were to actually pronounce Y-H-W-H, it sounds like a breath. It's Yahweh. It's like Yahweh or whatever, however you pronounce it. I don't know. But it's a breath. You can't pronounce it without breathing out. Now, the, the, the point behind that was when God created Adam, and when God created Adam, it says he breathed his life into him breathed his name, breathed his very existence into Adam. Now, what you see here with Abram is God is placing a breath in the middle of his name, saying, my breath is now upon you. My breath is now upon you. And that's a beautiful thing to see when God does that. And he's about to do it with Sarai as well. And he says, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. And then let's move down to verse 15. It says, Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. It's the same thing, breath of the Lord upon Sarah now. 
and I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless you richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings and nations will be among her descendants. Catch this, catch verse 17. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground and laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought to himself. And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? Has God ever promised you something and you just just kind of laughed at it? Because it was impossible. Because all you focused on, like Abraham focuses on right now, is your limitation. He says, I'm 100 almost. Sarah's 90, come on, man. We're not having babies. Gross. Like, I'm just saying. We're all thinking it. It's hurt. That's, that's, it's dangerous. <laughs> but seriously, though, I didn't mean that offensively. I'm serious. All they're focusing on <laughs> is limitation. Nothing but limitation. It's what you see with the disciples and the bread. And now it's what you see with Abraham and his age. If you continue to read on in that, that, that chapter in Genesis, we won't go there, but I'll just tell you a little bit about it. Abraham tries to barter with God. He says, no, God, no. Like, let my son Ishmael take the blessing. Let him live under your blessing. And God says, no, I'm doing it my way, Abraham. This isn't about you. He says, I will bless your other son as well in a different way. But your son will come from Sarah, and he will be the son I have promised you. Then we have the birth of Isaac. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 says, The Lord kept his word, big surprise, huh? And did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant. And she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. You see, when you you try to take things in your own hands, it still doesn't speed up the process. When God says it will be, it will be. We can't change that. You can't move that. You can't shift that in any way, shape, or form. And every decision we make, it it may affect us all around, And it may cause chaos as it did in Abram. He has to send his son Ishmael away from himself. That's painful. Because he took matters into his own hands and didn't trust the word of God. But who can blame him for not trusting the word of God when you've waited 24 years? You know what I mean? That's heavy. Now, it says, and Abraham named their son Isaac. And eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old. When Isaac was born, it took 25 years for God to fulfill the promise. 25 years of breaking. 25 years of Abraham waiting and waiting and waiting and asking and asking and asking, questioning and questioning God, what about your promise? What is all of this if I haven't received what you promised me? Sweet, the camels are awesome, thank you, but I don't need camels, I need a son. And so that, that's kind of where we, we, we're set up here. And we think, you would think this is the end of the breaking process. But it's only just begun. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. says, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. 
Take your son, your only son. And here, you, you know Abraham's thinking, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll go find Ishmael because you can't be talking about Isaac. And then God says, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. 25 years he waited. By this time, Isaac's probably about 10, maybe 12. So he's had, a, he's had time to bond. He's had time to fall in love all over again like only parents can understand what that feels like. He's had this connection that, 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 just, that can't be revoked. It can't be broken. And he waited for this. And God comes to him it's time to sacrifice him to me. See, Scripture doesn't inform us about, about the battle that Abraham must have had that night. It doesn't give us very much detail about, about what he must have been thinking and feeling and battling. But we as human beings in this day, we know what that's like. What do you mean give it up? What do you mean surrender this to you, God? What do you mean give you all that I have? I just got it. I, ju I just fell in love with it. And he goes on, the next morning Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of the journey, this is, this is a three-day journey. Can you imagine walking with your son for three days knowing what you're taking him to go do to him? Talk about inner torment, man. It says, on the third day of the journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And you know that this is where Abraham's heart drops because it's so real. In the same way that Jesus must have sunk when the cross was right there before him. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. A little farther. We will worship there. And then we will come right back. This is a little bit of interesting faith that you see there in Abraham. We will both come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. And here you see a parallel. Not, this isn't what I'm preaching about, but this is a little parallel that you have between Isaac and Jesus. Jesus carried the cross, and Isaac carries the lumber upon himself. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. And Isaac says, we, we, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? And at that moment, again, the brokenness that this man must have experienced, and he, he gives an incredible response. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. That part blows me away because I, I was telling my students this a couple weeks ago um, when I was sharing the same story is that I mean, I, he must have like knocked Isaac out because you're not going to let somebody just tie you up and throw you on an altar. Isaac's probably like freaking out like, what the crap are you doing, crazy man? What are you kidding me? You're going a little senile, 100-year-old guy. I don't know. Maybe Isaac was okay. Maybe he was conscious. But it says he laid him on the, on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Pause. Don't read ahead. 
And what happened? He, did he bring, he, he, he brings down the night. That's what we would expect. God, God, you must, you must hate me, God, to have me do this. You're going to let me kill my own kid? You're going to make me give this up? Are you kidding me? But out of my obedience, your will be done. This is what Abraham does. He brings down the knife, man, and, and he slits Isaac's throat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> People who don't have Bibles are like, what? There's no way. No, he doesn't. Everybody say God gave. You see, brokenness is periodic. Blessing is eternal. God gave. The Lord provides. It says Genesis 22, verse 11. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. The angel said, do not hurt him in any way. For now, I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. And I want you to see this in verse 16 to, to where we have it. I should, I should have it underlined, I believe, on the screen. If I don't, it's okay. You had 25 years of promise. All these different promises. I'll bless you as countless as the stars. I'll bless those who, who bless you, curse those who curse you. I'll do all these things. And Abraham this whole time, like, man, what, what good is your promise? And then here you have in verse 16, after this incredible act of obedience, this is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. He's bringing back to mind every promise he's given Abraham. This is beautiful. He says, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Remember that, Abraham? Remember when you were looking at the stars? It's coming back. And your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. You see, in Christianity, man, like we, we can get this idea about grace where we take it for such for granted. We, what Hebrews says, you trample upon the spirit of grace, which is so sad. And we, begin, we can begin to think my obedience plays no part in the will of God. He just said, because of your obedience, I will do this. Abraham could have withheld. He could have kept it behind his back. He could have, but he was obedient. And because of that breaking, that surrender, God gave beyond anything he could have ever imagined or achieved on his own. Isn't that beautiful? Which brings me to our next point, possessing nothing but having everything. You see, Abraham let go of all things, every earthly attachment he let go of. And he clinged to the one thing that he knew would never fail him, God. Let's pick up in Luke 9, verse 23. This is Jesus talking. He says, and he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It says deny himself, turn away from yourself, detach from all these things, take up the cross. See, the cross used to be a symbol of public punishment, humiliation, torture, and death. What's beautiful about Jesus is he flips everything around. He takes all of that upon himself and he makes the cross symbolize love, forgiveness, grace, life. A total flip. So we can get this really interesting idea like, oh man, I gotta punish myself and punish myself. and pun-. No, you need to take the love of God upon yourself and you won't have an issue of holding on to other things. Because when you have the love of God in your heart, there's nothing that compares, ever. It can't be touched. This is follow me. Another word that could be used in this, in this scripture of, of follow me is to cling on to. You can just write this in your notes, Psalm 63, verse 8. The psalmist says, my soul clings to you, clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So basically, what we see here in all of this is that when we live for ourselves, we lose everything. You just do. It's just the way life is. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. When you live for yourself, you lose everything. But when you surrender the self, you gain everything. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What more are you looking for? When you surrender, you gain. But when you hold on to, you lose. Holding nothing back. To reject this is to reject Jesus' very heart. And I'm going to get into this, this, this little illustration. I mean, every person in, in all humanity, you were created for God, by God, for him. Nothing else will ever satisfy that desire, that need. Nothing will. I don't care if you're Christian or not Christian. You're looking for God, whether you know it or not. And I could prove it to you because you're trying to fill yourself up with everything else. And it does not satisfy. It never will. It says in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. He created all these external things. He created external things to be blessing to man. But at the fall, we chose the self and we brought all external things, we put it within us, an internal idol, and we rejected God from the throne of our hearts. And since that day, everything external has been fighting for the throne of your heart. But only God's king. Only Jesus qualifies to sit there. Nothing else can fulfill, man. It's like you're putting, it's like you're getting a, your car, if you, if, you, if you idolize your vehicles, you're putting a car and asking it to lead your life. It can't even make it to 70,000 miles anymore. You're asking it to lead your life? We put it in our job. We get fired. Nothing to hold on to. We put it in a relationship. It falls apart. Nothing to hold on to. It's like this. We're all meant to be filled with something. That something is God. I hold here an iPad case. Okay, this isn't, you guys all see the iPad case? Now, this is meant for something. 
It was created, specifically designed to be filled with this. But as long as there's no iPad inside of this case, this is useless. This is empty. This is dead. It can't do anything. It could do one thing, two things. It can open and it can close. Open and close. That's all this has the ability to do. What we do in our lives, it's like we get the iPad case ourselves and we try to fill it up. Here we are and we're asking God, we're asking for all these things, looking for all this stuff, looking for fulfillment, you know, maybe, maybe money, maybe wealth, maybe this will do it. But it doesn't work. It doesn't fill. You have so much emptiness in this case right now, this will never satisfy. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe power, maybe authority. You like my symbol for power? It's awesome. It's a surge protector, the source of power. Just kidding, that's God. Maybe authority, maybe if I move up in my job, maybe if I can be a pastor, maybe if I can get involved in ministry and I could be in charge of something, then, then I'll have purpose, then I'll have meaning. But it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fill. I love this one. Relationships. I still love this. Relationships, they're hard. And you need a lot of this. You see, we put a person, a human being, on the throne of our hearts, and then we get mad at them when they fail us. They didn't put themselves there. You did. They cannot fill you up. They can't live up to the expectation. They are not God. What about religion? What about this? Well, if I read it enough, then I'll be full. If I go to church enough, then, then, then I'll be satisfied. If I, if I give enough, then, you know, if I just obey this to the T, I'll be, I'll be who I'm supposed to be. It gets close, but it's not full. It is not full. It is not satisfied. And what happens is when the trials of this world come at you, when this starts shaking, this doesn't hold on, and religion dies, and you're not satisfied. You're empty all over again. And people walk around saying, I tried it. I tried Christianity. I tried Jesus. No, you tried religion. And that will never satisfy. Because that's not what you were created for. You were created for one thing. And one thing only. And that thing is God. And when the trials come, this doesn't get loose. Because that's what you were made for. That's what we're to cling on to. As this clings on to my iPad, that's what we're to hold on to. Him and him alone. Because only he can satisfy. Amen? Ooh, the Holy Spirit anointing. 
all over this place. I hope you guys feel it. There's a thirst inside of you guys. The psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for these. Jesus is the only living water. And I quote this author, uh, Jefferson Betke, everything else is salt water. You'll drink it if you're thirsty, but it'll never satisfy. It'll never satisfy. This is a throne in our hearts. Being poor in spirit begins with the recognition of this truth. We're created for him. Only he will satisfy. Now, Jesus says, you, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And we get this attitude like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and then on the side, you know, I'll do your stuff too, God. And we have this idea in Christianity that I can skip steps. I'll just avoid that one. I don't need to, I don't need to die to self. This is the beginning, death to self. That's where it starts. And with God, there there is no skipping steps. You don't get from here to here unless if you've stepped here. You can't put this to the side. You can't deny this. To deny this is to deny Jesus. And that's heavy because American Christianity is to deny that. It's a rejection of death to self. I will still live for me and go to church. You can't skip that step and be a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, but you can't skip that and be a Christian. That's heavy. But that's truth. You see, God's taking us on a journey, and every step matters. And just like mathematics, it builds on each other. You're not going to understand step two if you didn't experience step one. I don't know what 10 times 100 is if I don't know what 1 times 10 is. You need it all. Only by his grace can we do this. You see, Jesus says this. You can go to Luke verse nine, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. This was a scribe. We see this in Matthew. This was a scribe. Real devout person. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. He said, Jesus actually calls this second guy out. He says, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, when you die to self, you die to selfish comfort, you die to selfish convenience, and you die to all other commitments. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And everything flows out of that. So I'm not saying, oh, I love Jesus only, so I'm going to go quit my job. No other commitments. Remember, that's what Pastor Benji said. No, you do your job as a commitment to Jesus. You love your wife as a commitment to Jesus. You love your husband as a commitment to Jesus. It's all him. He's the life source. And without it, it all fails. All surrendered. You surrender all of that. And in exchange, you get Christ. The kingdom of heaven. What more are we looking for? What else is there? 
It's scary. It seems scary to put into practice. This all ties back in now to to the miracle of the 5,000. The disciples, they gave up their rest. They were exhausted. But they gave it up. They were obedient. A little begrudging, but but they were obedient. The little boy kind of had no choice, but he gave up his snack pack. Poor little kid. But he gave it up. He didn't fight Andrew to keep his snack pack. Abraham gave up his son of promise. So so my point in today, what is God asking of you? What is God asking of you? Now this is scary, but it's only scary if you don't understand God and his nature towards you as a father. The question is this, do you trust him? Do you trust him? This is what the Lord told me yesterday. You worship what you trust. You can sing songs. We can lift hands. We can pray prayers. But when it all boils down, you worship what you trust. Is it your finances? Is it your relationship? Is it your position? Is it your religion? What do you trust? That's what you're worshiping. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, I love the book of Hebrews because it reveals so, something so beautiful about the heart of Abraham that we don't see in Genesis. It, uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen. you can write that in your notes. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, as, or, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, that night, after Abraham gets talked to by God, offer up your son, this is the section we don't see. Abraham wrestles and wrestles and wrestles, and then he realizes something. God doesn't hate me. God loves me. So even if he, even if this is what he's asking, he promised me Isaac. He promised me Isaac that, that, that through him it would all happen. God cannot break his promises. He reasons this stuff. It's beautiful. It's cool because God tells us in, in the prophecies, come let us reason together. I think a lot of times we're scared to wrestle with God about things because, well, because we'd get smashed a little bit. But God encourages us to think through these things. It's beautiful. Abraham comes to this realization, he loves me. He promised me, so I will obey. And even if the knife touches my boy, he is far greater. He'll bring him back from the dead. That's called faith. That's amazing faith. And the reward will always outweigh the sacrifice. Always. Now let's go back to the end of Luke 9, verse 17. And we'll close with this. This is the part I didn't want you to cheat and read ahead. So I know you guys are all waiting, like, oh, what's going to happen? Do what happened with the bread and the fish. It says, and they all ate. They all ate and were satisfied, filled. 
And what was left over was picked up. 12 baskets of broken pieces. You can write this, John 6, 12. Love the way he says it. And when they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost or wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves they had left by those who had eaten. See, when we surrender, whatever these things are, when we put them in the hands of God, nothing is wasted in the hands of God. It does not go to waste. Our fear is that what I'm going to give you, you're never going to give me back. No, 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 no. He's a father. He loves you. He's a father. He promised you. The question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to put it in his hands with complete faith that whatever you put in his hands is coming back a hundredfold. Now let's clarify this. If I give God a hundred dollars, that doesn't mean you're going to get a thousand dollars. Maybe it does. That's awesome. But money's temporary. Faith is the thing, it's the substance of things hoped for. It doesn't fail. We're looking for spiritual blessing. And if there's some physical, thank you, Jesus. But we're looking for spiritual life because that's all that fills us. Amen? Nothing's ever wasted. All it does is increase. All it does is increase. For my final illustration, some of you are holding on to something like this. It's an iPod. You're not literally holding on to it. Don't check your hands right now. Like, what? When did an iPod get in my hands? No, I'm not. No. Well, holding on to something like this, it's, it's valuable. Mine doesn't even work. For some of us, you're holding on to something that doesn't even work. But you're not letting go. Because this is yours. This is you. This is all that you, this is what you cling to. And again, this is a pathetic illustration, but the Lord is saying, just give it to me. Just trust me. Offer it up. Hold nothing back. Because I have something more for you. I have something of greater value, greater worth. Something that'll actually do something. Life. So this morning, we know these scriptures. Romans 8, 28, we know, we know that for the good of, we know that for the, the, those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 3, 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. We know these things, but do we live these things? What are you holding back? Is it your rights? Is it your money? Is it your family? Is it your position? Is it your heart? What are you holding back? See, the Lord sent me this morning to encourage you with this word. Hold nothing back from him, and he will hold nothing back from you.
Amen.